Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing our series in the life of Jacob, and here James Jordan is going to be in Genesis chapter 49, verses 22 through 28, discussing Jacob's blessings for Joseph and Benjamin. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you are sharpened by this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing Genesis chapter 49 in the life of Jacob. Well, we come now to the end of the blessings that Jacob gives to his sons in Genesis chapter 49. And we have looked at all of them except the last two. The first three sons, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, didn't receive blessings. They received judgments. And then we start with a blessing section, which has a kind of chiasm. It starts with Judah. Judah is a kingly tribe. He's like a lion. And at the end, we come to Benjamin, which is the other kingly tribe. And he's like a wolf. The language is pretty much the same as regards the two. And then continuing with Judah, he's described as having a donkey a she-ass that is tied to a vine, and Joseph is also compared to a she-ass if we read the text one way, and that's what we will have to look at now, and then in your notes you have the whole thing mapped out. And we have come down now to these last two, to Joseph and Benjamin, and I will read from Fox, and if you're not reading Fox's translation, you'll find something completely different in this first verse. And that's what we'll have to discuss for a few minutes, exactly how to translate this. But the way Fox translates it is, Young wild ass, Joseph. Young wild ass along a spring, donkeys along a wall. Bitterly they shot at him. The archers assailed him. Yet firm remained his bow, and agile stayed his arms and hands. By means of the hand of Yaakov's champion up there, the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By your father's mighty one, may he help you. And Shaddai, may he give you blessing. Blessings of the heavens from above, blessings of ocean or the deep crouching below, blessings of breast and womb. May the blessings of your father transcend the blessings of the mountains eternal, the bounds of hills without age. May they fall upon the head of Yosef, on the crown of the Nazarite among his brothers. Obviously, I changed that from consecrated one to Nazarite. Now, as we look at this in verse 22 of chapter 49, we can see the Joseph section has three parts. Joseph is described as either a plant or a donkey in verse 22. Then there is a battle in which he is victorious by means of the help that God gives him in verses 23 and 24, and then tremendous special blessings are given to him in verses 25 and 26. So in verse 22, now I have to spend a couple of minutes on the translation, because this is a verse that's difficult no matter what you do with it, and so it's your opportunity to at least see that we're still at the beginning of history, and 2,000 years from now, Scholars will know better exactly what to do with this, although I think we can do a pretty good job now. 
The New American Standard Bible says, verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by a spring, its branches run over a wall. Well, now that's an attempt to deal with what is in the Hebrew. Fox, a young wild ass is Joseph, a young wild ass along a spring, donkeys along a wall, is another attempt to deal with what's there in Hebrew. What does it say? It says, a son of Pirath, Joseph, a son of Pirath near a spring, daughters Ta'ara a wall. The tough words are the words that I've left in Hebrew there. The first one is the word Pirath. Well, Par is a fruit, and para means fruitful, but parath, which looks like it could be a feminine form of the word para or a feminine construct or plural, is never used. And so that introduces the problem. The problem traditional commentators have had is that the grammar here doesn't seem to work very well, and so now we have the alternative of wild donkey. And the question is whether this word means fruitfulness, a son of fruitfulness is Joseph, a son of fruitfulness near a spring, or it's a son of a wild she-ass, a lady donkey near a spring. And the problems are these. First, the expression son of is never used with plants. You don't find anywhere else in the Bible that either a person or a literal plant, offspring of a plant, is called a son of another plant. You don't have the son of a cedar tree or anything like that. You might have that in American Indian language, but you don't have it anywhere else in the Bible, which doesn't mean they couldn't talk that way, but it does mean we're not sure they ever talked that way. We're not sure that an expression like that would ever have been used. Furthermore, this form, piraf, is never used anywhere else for the idea of fruitfulness. In fact, there's questions... You know, I don't want to go too far into the grammar here, but from a grammatical standpoint, it seems unlikely that this form would be used. You would have written it differently if you wanted to say that. Another problem is that all the other tribes have animal analogies, and there aren't any other plant analogies anywhere in here. Judah is like a lion. Zebulun is like a big beast. Issachar is like a strong-boned donkey. Dan is like a serpent. Naphtali is a free-running doe. But we don't have any other plants here, so the question is, why would the language change? Well, it could change, but maybe not. The expression, son of a wild ass, or son of a wild she-ass, Joseph, is directly parallel in verse 9 to wealth of a lion is Judah. They're exactly parallel, and because the beginning and end of this section, the blessings on kingly Judah, the blessings on kingly Benjamin and his brother Joseph, that parallel would seem to indicate we're talking about animals rather than plants. And the word for wild ass is pare, which is very similar, and parath could be a feminine form of that word. Again, we don't know for sure. See, we've got this word parath. doesn't occur anywhere else in the Bible. It could be related to fruitfulness. It could be related to wild ass. Other Semitic languages do have the word parath for wild ass or wild animal, and most modern evangelicals now have come to prefer to translate it as wild she-ass for these reasons. It works better grammatically. It works better in context. If you look at verse 23, it says, They shot at him, the archers assailed him. Well, you don't shoot arrows at a plant. 
But if you've got a bunch of donkeys around a spring and you want to bring your sheep over there, you might shoot some arrows at them. Context favors translating it as wild she-donkey rather than as fruitfulness. And then the third phrase here is also a problem. It says, daughters doing something at a wall. Well, that's the way it looks. And you can translate the daughters as the shoots of a plant, the shoots that a plant sends out are its daughters. And then the word would mean striding. They're striding up a wall. And, of course, that gets paraphrased to plants climbing over a wall or something. But it's not the word for climb. It's the word for striding if we translate it that way. Or we can translate it as wild she-asses or wild asses. should not be she-asses there. I have to correct that. Just wild ass. Well, partly this depends, obviously, on how you take the first two phrases. If we're talking about plants here, then this is something. The daughters of the plant are climbing over the wall. If we're talking about donkeys here, then this is probably donkeys again next to a wall. Well, again, we've got some grammatical indications. The word daughter is never used for part of a plant. The Bible never talks about the shoots of a plant as daughters of a plant. You can imagine that. It might. plant sends forth its daughters. But it never talks that way anywhere else in the Bible, which raises the question of whether an idiom like that existed in common Hebrew talk. And plants are never said to stride. They may climb, they may win their way or grow, but they don't stride up a wall. It could be used here and nowhere else, it's possible, but again, it would make it a lot easier if we had some place over in Isaiah or somewhere it said, the daughters of the olive tree were striding over the side of the hill or something and covering the hill. It's never written that way. We look at other Semitic languages and we find this phrase, daughters tsa'ada, or bath, the word is bath, which is daughter, bath tsa'ada, means wild asses, which fits. So modern evangelicals have come to prefer that. It would be nice to have a lot more evidence along these lines. I haven't got down here in your notes. This is probably more than you ever wanted to hear in the first place. But there's also a problem if you translate it with daughters as shoots of the plants growing up along a wall. The number and gender of the noun does not agree with the verb. But if you translate the word daughter as daughter tsa'ada as a phrase meaning wild donkey, you don't have a problem. So... For these reasons, you will find in the modern commentators and in most recent translations a preference for the idea of a wild donkey here. And I think that's correct. I mean, I think that's the bottom line. Is that just as Judah is a lion and the Judah story ends by talking about Judah's donkey, so at the end of this we have Benjamin as a wolf and the next thing in from that is Joseph as a donkey. So again, take the Judah section in two parts. Right at the beginning, we have a lion king. The last thing in the story is Benjamin, who is a wolf king. Both of them eating their prey. Same language and everything else, tearing their prey. And then Judah is also got his donkeys that he ties up. And Joseph is like donkeys. And this fits much better in context. It explains why people are shooting arrows at him in the next verse. It seems to work much better. But... 
The older translations don't have it for a pretty simple reason. Until we learned more about other ancient Semitic languages, it wasn't clear at all what this meant. If you were to go back and look at commentaries written 300 years ago that try to deal with the exegesis, they'll tell you, well, there's a whole bunch of problems here, but it seems like Joseph is being compared to a fruitful plant, even though the grammar doesn't work out. But they didn't have the alternative. Now, with all the research that's been done in other Semitic languages, Ugaritic and others, we know that these words can mean donkeys. We don't know that from the Bible, but we know it here. I do think the word pare, wild ass, linked close to para, meaning fruitfulness, is used in the Bible. And so that's the preference. Now, I don't think that's all that needs to be said here, but I've given you what I think is the first order translation without any puns. The son of a wild she-ass is Joseph, a son of a wild she-ass near a spring, wild asses by a wall. That's what it says. But the question then comes, why use such unusual words? Why not use the plain old regular words that you have in Hebrew for a wild donkey or a wild she-ass? They are used, the she-ass anyway is used in verse 11 for Judah's tribe. Why use it? And I think the answer is to set up a series of puns. We're deliberately using a pun that relates to fruitfulness and a pun that relates to the word Pharaoh. Para, fruitfulness, is very similar to Pharaoh. There's only one extra letter in the word Pharaoh. Paroah. Paro. People usually misspell that. They spell it P-H-A-R-O-A-H, and of course it's not. It's Pharao. And there's a sound between the A and the O. Pharao. Take that sound out and you've got Farah. Same word. Written the same way. And I think that the commentators who have suggested that there might be a hint of a pun here probably have got it right. Joseph is the son of Pharaoh in a sense as well. So we can begin to see the fact that this is giving a whole picture here in a few words if we allow the puns. And we've done that right along. We've seen that right along in this prophecy there's hints of double meanings and extra meanings in the unusual phrasing and words that show up. Ephraim doesn't sound like parah to us, but it's got that same root in it. Ephraim means fruitfulness. Joseph said, I named his second son Ephraim because God has made me fruitful here. And this word parah or farah is an ephraim, okay? It's right in the middle of it, and it's the same word. Ephraim is the son of Joseph that is preferred, that Jacob switched the two sons, crossing his hands and making Ephraim firstborn, and Ephraim seems to be alluded here, his fruitfulness. So, with all that rambled around, let's look at just this verse and see what's entailed. The characterization, I say, focuses on Ephraim, whom Jacob had made firstborn of Joseph. All this Pira language is going to remind people of Ephraim, and that's part of it. Since Manasseh is with Ephraim as now the younger brother, he is included. Fruitful Ephraim, though, is also a wild ass. We cannot rest with translating it as Ephraim, or we couldn't translate it that way. We couldn't translate it as the idea of fruitfulness. It won't work. We have to include also, and first of all, the idea of a wild donkey. 
as the son of a wild ass. Joseph is the son of a wild ass. Now it says here in Fox, young wild ass, but in Hebrew it says son of a wild she-ass. Well, then who's the wild she-ass? Is Rachel. Rachel is a you, that's what the word means, a lady sheep. But to us, a jackass is an insult. You've got to never bring that into the Bible. Donkeys are just fine. Just like this Dan being a snake, this is the good snake. And this is nice, wild donkey is not an insult to anybody. Rachel is wild in the sense that she's not originally part of Abraham's people. In other words, you go outside and get a woman outside of the domestic house. If you don't marry your sister, you're marrying somebody that's wild. You see, it's inside your house, it's tame and domestic, and what's outside the domestic house is wild. It doesn't mean wild in the sense of being crazy. It just means that the wild donkey is one that's not in the corral. It's out there. Well, Rebecca, we went off a long way to get Rebecca. She wasn't here in a home in the corral. She was way out there. She's wild, and so is Rachel, and so is Leah. Anybody that you get from the outside is wild compared to what's there on the inside in your household economy. So there's an allusion here to Rachel and Rachel's descendants through them. Ephraim, adopted by Jacob, is the son of Rachel, the wild she is. So the puns can be run in a bunch of different directions. Remember that Jacob adopts Ephraim and Manasseh and says, They're my sons, and I'm taking them in. So they become sons of Rachel in this sense as well. Then he goes on. And says, wild asses by a wall, that means that their sons, Ephraim's sons, Joseph's sons, the later people of this tribe, will be wild asses. Not wild she-asses, just wild asses. And two things were said about them. They're watered by a spring, they're near a spring, and they're by a wall. They receive this water from God's grace. don't have this down here, but remember that the patriarchs are always finding their wives by wells of water. Rachel, for instance, was. Well, where did Jacob meet Rachel? If she's a wild she-ass by a spring of water, well, that's exactly where he met her. So this is Edenic language here. The spring of water in the Garden of Eden is way in the background. Well, not too far back in the background. It's in the book of Genesis. So that's part of the background, and it's an idea of God's blessing. And then there's the wall here, which is protection. And... That will come up again in verse 24 where God is called the stone or rock of Israel as protection. So they're protected by the wall and they're fed by or watered by a spring of God's grace. And then there is also the pun that some have pointed out and I think is true enough that a son of Parah can also sound like and would conjure up in the mind son of Pharaoh, which is also true. And Joseph is a father to Pharaoh in the sense of giving him direction and leadership. But he's also adopted clearly in some respect as the son of Pharaoh. Pharaoh gives him the golden collar, tells him, you're in charge of everything. You carry the signet ring. Well, who carries the signet, not the ring, but a seal? Who carries the seal of a king, if not the king's son, in some sense? And Pharaoh is the ruler of the world. He's converted, so he's a messianic type, not a messianic type of someone who dies for his people, but a messianic type of kingship. 
And right now, he's the king. And so, Joseph, as a son of Pharaoh, is entirely appropriate description and blessing of him. This is what you get if you can look back at the Hebrew. It's just too bad that you can't do that. And you're just so lucky that you have me to do it for you. Well, in some ways I don't like to do this because I remember old R.B. theme. He would always be... Then there are other teachers who are constantly going back to the Hebrew and Greek and making people feel as if you can't understand the Bible if you don't know it. Well, you can understand 99.9% of the Bible out of your English Bible. It's just that there's a few places where it gets complicated and crunched up. And see, right away, if you have one Bible, it's going to talk about donkeys here. And if you have another Bible, it's going to talk about plants. So I have to spend a few minutes telling you why that is. And that really, I think both are implied, but the primary emphasis is on Joseph being the son of a wild she-ass and his tribe being a company of wild donkeys, tough donkeys, donkeys you wouldn't want to mess with, kingly donkeys in a sense. Well, not exactly kingly, but strong donkeys, warrior donkeys. That's where it's going to end up by saying that Joseph is a Nazarite, a warrior. And right away then, a few things were said about his being a warrior and being tough. And you don't want to mess with a bunch of wild donkeys. So it's uh, praise, and that's the primary thing here. But in the background is the idea of fruitfulness and also the idea of being a son of Pharaoh. That's as much as we can do on that. If it's confusing, look over your notes again. It's all there. The main thing I think to take away is that We are still talking about tough animals here that the tribes are. So if your Bible has a fruitful plant, is Joseph, you should just cross that out and say, son of a wild she-ass, and the whole verse is about a bunch of tough donkeys. Well, verse 23 continues this. It says, Fox says, bitterly they shot at him. Really, bitterly is not too good. They attack him and they shoot is that first phrase. And then, the lords of arrows try to eliminate him. He's taken out the lords of, and he's just got archers assailed him. It's really the idea of eliminating, wiping him out, and the actual expression is, lords of arrows. And I've got down here, and you note that slanderers is also implied, because shooting arrows at people, often in the Bible, is a reference to slander. And this phraseology here goes back to the brothers and their attack on Joseph. But I remind you, of course, that you don't shoot arrows at plants. You shoot arrows at wild donkeys. And that, again, helps us to know which translation is preferable. The allusions are back to the brothers' attacks and slanders against Joseph. And actually, this word try to eliminate him, they try to eliminate him, shows up again in chapter 50, verse 15, where it's translated differently in your English Bibles, but it means the same thing. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and repays, yes, repays us for all the ill we tried to cause him? Well, you could translate that, What if Joseph tries to eliminate us? It's the exact same word as used here. Somebody's trying to eliminate Joseph with their arrows and their slanders. 
and selling him off into slavery and everything else, what if Joseph turns around and tries to eliminate the brothers? Eye for eye and tooth for tooth, do to them as they did to him. We'll get there, but it helps us to translate this and to understand what's being talked about here. Some commentators have said this refers to the future, that all of these blessings do have future prophecies in mind, and they do. problem is we don't have later on in the Bible any big wars that Joseph and Manasseh fought that seem clearly to be alluded to here, although they do. It's much easier to see this at least pointing back to what the brothers tried to do. And continuing in verse 24, Yet firm remained his bow, and agile stayed his arms and hands. Joseph remained strong, and agile is able to land on his feet. He is able to defend himself when he's given an opportunity. And he is agile. I think the primary idea there is that whatever bad things happen to Joseph, he managed to roll with the punch and land on his feet and keep going. He wasn't defeated. He was attacked. He was hurt. He wasn't defeated. And why? What enabled him to withstand these assaults? Well, now we have three names for God, and there are more names for God here than there are anywhere else in the prophecies. In fact, the various names and descriptions of God don't come up in the rest of these very much. But here, we've got four of them in a row. There are three of them here in this verse. He is able to sustain himself because of God's hand helping him. And the first is Jacob's champion. Your Bible may have something else, but that's about as good as it gets right there. Some translations for that say the mighty one of Jacob. This says, verse 24, the mighty one of Jacob. But mighty one is a better translation of the word El, and here champion is better. Jacob's champion up there, it says, or I think that means Jacob's champion on high. He is on high, and I think the up there or on high is an allusion to Jacob's ladder. Joseph has the same God as Jacob, the God who is at the top of the ladder, who is going to promise blessings. And remember the context in which that's given. Jacob himself, Jacob, is leaving the land. He's going into a dangerous place. And God appears to him at the top of the ladder and says, I'll be with you and I'll take care of you and I'll protect you. Now what happened to Joseph? Well, Joseph left the land and went into a dangerous place. So God had to be the same God for him. The one who protects and champions your cause when you are in a foreign land. And when Jacob was in a foreign land, Laban tried to cheat him, and Jacob had to be agile and land on his feet and continue to prosper in spite of all the attacks that were against him and slander that Laban tried to put against him. And here's Joseph, his son. He goes into a foreign land. There's slanders against him. The wife slanders him, the wife of Potiphar. They attack him, but he lands on his feet because the same God, the champion who is on high, is with him. So it's a very appropriate name. And then the second name for God is that God is the shepherd. He is the overlord of Israel. Way back when we started this, I pointed out to you how words for sheep and goat and he-goat and she-goat and young goat and baby goat and baby sheep and she-sheep and ewe and lamb and all these words and flock member, these words pile up in the Jacob story. They have hardly occurred at all up to that time in Genesis, and then they occur about 50 or 60 times within a few chapters. 
And Jacob is the shepherd, but of course the real shepherd behind him is Yahweh, and that's what he refers to here. God shepherds the people. He moves them here, he moves them there. And Joseph was moved here, and he was moved there, but God was shepherding him and taking care of him. And Joseph trusted in him. And then it says, the rock of Israel, Israel's rock which I think in context refers partly back to the donkeys along the wall, the protective wall that is a shield to the wild asses of Joseph. But also, uh, commentators point out, and I think this is probably true, when Jacob saw the dream of the ladder, he had put a rock under his head, and afterwards he set up a rock, and that would be the rock of Jacob or the rock of Israel as well. And the picture that you get a champion on high and a rock under your head is that you live in between where God is. God is surrounding you. God is beneath you. God is above you. God is with you. God is ahead of you. He's behind you. If you know the hymn of St. Patrick, you're familiar with that. Middle section. It says all those things. And the same idea is here. We'll see it again in just a moment. Blessing of the heavens above, blessings of the deep beneath, this geographical imagery, God surrounding and protecting the people on all sides. So it's a God who goes before you, who champions you from on high, and who is under your head as a stone and next to you as a wall. That's the one that Joseph trusted because he trusted him and God gave him his help. He was able to survive the attacks of his brothers and of Potiphar's wife and doubtless a few jealous Egyptians who didn't like being ruled over by Joseph, thought they should have been at Pharaoh's right hand, and lots of other things that we don't know about, but doubtless happened. So we've had a description of him as a wild donkey, and his his tribe is a bunch of wild donkeys, and then by God's help he survives it. Three names for God, and now we come to a fourth name for God, El Shaddai, in verse 25. At some point, I will just leave this Bible open so we can look at it more easily. The NASB translates it, From the God of your Father who helps you, and by the Almighty who blesses you. That translation wouldn't show you what's here. And neither would this. Fox says, By your Father's God may He help you, and Shaddai may He give you blessing. But the word God is not the word Elohim, which is the normal word for God. It's just El, which really means the Mighty One. And what we have here, the commentators routinely point out, is the name El Shaddai. And it's just split apart. May from your father's El who supports you, from Shaddai who blesses you, then blessings from above, blessings from below. They're both halves of the name are there. And El Shaddai, as we've seen in Genesis, is the name of God who makes promises. Yahweh is the God who keeps the promises that he's made, and that's why the name Yahweh comes into prominence at the Exodus, because then God fulfills all the promises he made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and brings them back into the land. But here we are at the other side of that. Shaddai is all-powerful. He's the Mighty One, and you can trust him when he makes promises to you. And so we got a bunch of promises here. Promises from the God of promises. And three blessings are mentioned in verse 25. They are above, below, and in the middle where human life is. So that you're surrounded and permeated by blessings. Blessings are above you, blessings are below you, and blessings are all through 
your life, all the places where in the middle where you live your life. Blessings of heavens from above, which is at one side, blessings of the ocean crouching below, or the deep, and blessings of breasts and womb. And commentators raise the question, why don't you say womb and breasts? You know, first of all, you have to have a baby, and then you feed the baby. But they explain that this is something of an idiom, and if you wanted to break it apart, it would mean milk and fruitfulness from many animals as well as human offspring coming from the womb. And so it doesn't really matter what order it's in. But that's the idea. Jacob says, may Joseph receive all this fullness of blessing. And then he says in verse 26, may the blessings of your father transcend the blessings of the eternal mountains. Well, Jacob is not saying, well, may I be blessed. May my blessings transcend. May the blessings I'm giving you. May your father's blessings that are being given to you, may they be more than the blessings of the ancient mountains and the goodness of the everlasting hills. Fox says the bounds of hills without age, but it's more the goodness of the everlasting hills. Well, what is that? I didn't know what it meant. What are blessings of enduring mountains? What is the goodness of hills? You say to somebody that you like, Oh, may God give you the blessings of the hills. What's that? Well, the commentators explain that when you go to Israel, you notice in the summertime that everything dries up except on the hills where it's green year-round because they're up high, it's cooler up there. And so in the ancient Near Eastern literature and elsewhere in the Bible, the fact that the vegetation is green all the time on the hills is what's meant by everlasting or continual hills. The blessing never stops. Everything doesn't dry out and start to blow away in the summertime like it does down in the plain where you don't have any water and where it gets hot and dry unless you irrigate it. But quite naturally, up on the top of the mountains, everything stays nice and green over there. So that's what they explain it as being. It makes sense to me that the blessings would be continual, which adds another thought. The blessings are from heaven above. You're surrounded and from the earth beneath and from breasts and womb, which is future, and also from the ancient mountains, which is past. So the blessings that are perpetual coming from the past, the blessings of offspring in the future, the blessings are up above and the blessings are down below. You're surrounded in space and time with blessings. In other words, the language here, once we decode the symbolism, gives us this. Blessings on all sides, past and future, above and below. So it's pretty comprehensive. And that's what Jacob is saying. And then finally in verse 26, he saith, May they fall on the head of Joseph, on the crown of the consecrated one among his brothers. That's what Fox says. This says and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. Both of those translations are avoiding a little bit. The, well, Fox is better. The word here is Nazir, which means Nazarite. We have it in English as Nazarite. Well, of course, there aren't any Nazarites yet because the law hasn't been given. But 
what is meant by it is roughly the same. We find that out in Numbers chapter 5, 5 or 6, I can never remember which it is. The laws for the Nazarite, once the tabernacle is set up, and they're very complex. But a Nazarite is a leader in holy war. Samson is your Nazarite. Samuel is your Nazarite. John the Baptist is your Nazarite. They're the three permanent Nazarites. And then in Judges, Deborah leads all the men to take a Nazarite vow so that their hair is long, and they defeat Sisera. When the stars fight against Sisera, this is the holy warrior. And so Joseph will be a leader in God's warfare among the brothers. He'll be a leader. Now, he's not going to be a king. Kings don't come from Joseph. Joseph is kind of like a king in this passage. We've seen before that in this story, Benjamin is a king, Judah is a king, and Joseph is a king. All three of them are pointing forward to future kingdom in Israel in different ways. But Joseph is actually not going to be a king, but he is a leader. And the tribe of Ephraim continues to be one of the major war tribes and major leadership tribes throughout the future history. And, of course, eventually there are kings from Joseph in the northern kingdom. So that's what's here. May these blessings come upon him who is the holy war leader among the brothers, which, of course, restricts it somewhat. If Ephraim departs from the Lord, if they stop living a holy life, if they stop being consecrated, then they're going to receive these blessings. And that, of course, is what begins to happen to Ephraim. In the book of Judges, they start to turn against the judges. They turn against Jephthah, and Jephthah has to defeat him in battle. And then later on, they split the kingdom and go off and have the northern kingdom, and they never have one single good king. And they receive judgment after judgment after judgment because they don't remain consecrated. In fact, what happens, Jeroboam forbids the people to go down to Jerusalem to worship. And he puts his line of troops there to prevent the people from going down to worship at the holy festivals. Well, in Jeroboam and the tribe of Ephraim and the whole northern kingdom, which is called Ephraim, they're cutting themselves off from being consecrated and holy. So they're not going to receive these blessings. But as long as Joseph is consecrated and holy, then this is huge, tremendous amount of blessings. Now, one last comment here. He gives all these blessings to Joseph, and you can read this either two ways, both probably somewhat true. Joseph was his favorite son. Joseph has done all these good things to him, so he rewards him by giving him so many more blessings than everybody else. It's one way to look at it. I think a preferable way to look at it is all the blessings that are given here are for all the tribes. And in particular, since Joseph is a leader at this time, if all the other tribes want to experience these blessings, they need to link up with Joseph. If you're a member of Gad, or if you are Gad, and Gad and his sons and his men are all there hearing this, and Naphtali and his sons and daughters are hearing all this, and you hear all these blessings and say, I like those blessings too. Gee, I'd like to have blessings from above and below and in the future and coming from the past. I'd like to have all of this. How are you going to get it? You're going to get it by associating with Joseph with Holy Joe, the consecrated Joseph. How are you going to get these blessings? By linking up with Joseph. Well, they're afraid here at the end. Now that their father's dead, maybe Joseph will turn against us and kill us all. Joseph says, no, no, stay with me. I'll take care of you. So that's the idea. 
If you want the blessings of Gad, then you've got to be associated with Gad. And if you want the blessings of Judah, you need to stick with Judah. They all need to stick together so they can all have all the blessings. But particularly at this time in history, Jacob is about to die, and he can see that conflict could erupt again between Joseph and the brothers. He sets things up in such a way that the brothers are motivated to stick close to Joseph. Well, let's at least do Benjamin. And maybe the summary, and then we'll take up the death of Jacob next week. Verse 27, Benjamin, a wolf that tears to pieces. In the morning he devours prey, and then in the evening he divides up the spoil. Well, this is more kingly talk. This is your kingly wolf, and this tearing to pieces and devouring prey was the same thing said about Judah when it said Judah was like a lion. Back in verse 9, A lion's whelp is Judah. From torn prey, my son, you have grown up. He squats and he lies down. He goes to sleep, and like a king of beasts, who dares rouse him up? He's one tough lion, and he eats the torn prey, and that's what he's grown up on. Well, Benjamin is a wolf that tears to pieces and eats the prey in the morning. And he's a warrior tribe. In the evening, he divides up the spoil. Well, that's a good thing. Benjamin goes bad, then they become a bad wolf. And, of course, that happens at the end of Judges. You remember the Benjamites wind up in a war against all the other tribes and are almost massacred out of existence. Only 600 of them left. But that's not here. This is a prophecy of good things. Just as Judah, being compared to a lion who tears prey and devours it, is kingly, so Benjamin, as a wolf, tears prey, devours it, Kingly, pointing forward to King Saul, the first king. Then in verse 28, we have a summary. All these are the tribes of Israel, twelve. This is what their father spoke to them. He blessed them according to what belonged to each of them as blessing. He blessed them. Just a couple of points. They weren't all blessed. Reuben, Simeon, and Levi are not blessed. That wouldn't be fair to say they're cursed. That language is not used. But they are judged and they are rejected because of what they did. And yet the whole thing is said to be a blessing. He doesn't say, in this way Israel blessed and judged his tribes. The blessing is what counts. The judgment is just the backside of blessing. What God wants for his people is blessing. And once again, these three tribes that are excluded here, if they want to participate in all these blessings, and they just have to repent and get back into the club and associate with the other tribes who are being blessed. And he also says, each is blessed appropriately to what belongs to each one, which is what tells us that we need to look at prophecy, we need to look at this as a prophecy, that these are things that are going to characterize these tribes later on. But they're also all blessed together, and in a larger way, all participate in each blessing and each warning. You may be a member of the tribe of Asher, and not of the tribe of Gad, But if something that's kind of like Gad happens to you, then you need the faith of Gad and you need to behave like Gad. So there's kind of a one in a many aspect to all of this. Well, that's it for today. I hope that the translation stuff wasn't too complicated for you, but we needed to do it. And next time we'll look at the death of Jacob and then the burying of Jacob and move into chapter 50 and we're almost done. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. 
You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.